open to Revelation 2 and the church at Pergamum, verses 12 through 17. We'll be studying that. We'll be continuing our Dear Church sermon series together this morning. Dictionary.com defines compromise as this, to make a dishonorable or shameful concession. To make a dishonorable or shameful concession. And we all kind of in our own lives know what compromise means, do we not? Obviously, there's a good connotation of compromise. Most of us only live in relationships with each other, in our marriages, in work, by compromising, by coming to a midpoint, by resolving to work together with others. However, there's also a dark side to compromise, a compromise that involves undermining our values, undermining the things that we commit to in our lives, undermining the reality of truth and the reality of right and wrong. This is the definition of compromise we're dealing with together this morning. And this is precisely what was going on in the church in Pergamum, as Chandra already took the time to read for us. They were living in a difficult culture, but the culture was finding its way into the church. And the believers in Pergamum were beginning to compromise. They were beginning to soften on their doctrinal convictions. They were beginning to soften on what they believed about right and wrong and the way they should live their lives. And in that way, I think this message is relevant for us today too, is it not? I want us to ask the question as we move through this message, this letter to the church of Pergamon this morning, in what areas have we, both personally and corporately as a church, allowed the culture to shape what we think and do more than the Word of God? In what ways have we allowed the culture to shape what we think, what we do, what we believe more than God's Word? It's a hard message but it's one that I think is incredibly timely for us together this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the chance to be together this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word and the truths that we've already sung about, that we don't have to fear because of your love and your salvation of us. Lord, we're thankful for your church, for the joy of getting together together to worship you, for the chance to be um, a church in this community, to impact people with the love of Christ for eternity. So, Lord, we just pray that as we study your word together this morning, that you would do what only you can do, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would help us to hear this, that you would make us aware if there are areas in our lives that we've begun to compromise to the culture. Lord, we just ask that you would empower your word, that your spirit would change our hearts and minds, and that we would leave different today because of this message. Father, speak through me so that only what is truth is remembered by your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Chandra has already read our passage together with us. Hopefully you've enjoyed getting to hear from some few other voices and not just hearing mine on Sunday morning. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, let me just bring you up to speed a little bit. The last three weeks we've been in our series, Dear Church, Seven Letters to Christ's Bride, and we've been talking about these seven letters that Jesus writes to these seven churches. As the bridegroom, he writes these love letters to his seven churches. And these these letters involve compliments for the churches, for the things they're doing right, concerns for the way the church is maybe getting off course, corrections for how they get back on course, and then Christ's commitment as the bridegroom to his bride. The first week, we talked about the church at Ephesus, and Christ's message to his church was love. 
You've abandoned your first love. You're right on doctrine. You're trying hard. Your, 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 your zeal is incredible, but you've abandoned your first love. Last week, we studied the church at Smyrna, and Christ's message to that church, which was under incredible persecution, was do not fear. I know it's hard, and I know it's going to get harder, but do not fear. Now we move on to Pergamum, Christ's third letter in verses 12 through 17. And if anyone hasn't memorized the outline yet, it's the same that it's been the last two weeks. It'll be the same for a few weeks yet. We should come to expect the same format for letters. We get three parts. Start off with the address of the letter. Who is the letter to? Who is the letter from in verse 12? Kind of like the outside of an envelope. Second, we get the letter's aim. Why is Jesus writing to this church? What is he seeking to have them do, to have them believe, to have them understand? We see that in verses 13 through 16. And then finally, every letter wraps up with an assurance, a commitment Christ makes to his bride, the church. Let's start off with the letter's address. Look at verse 12. We read this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now again, the letter to the angel of the church at Pergamum, what do we know about Pergamum? Every week we're asking this question. The city of Pergamum was located about 70 miles north of Smyrna in Asia Minor. It was an academic city. It was the location of a famous library. It was the location of a lot of scholarly work. It was even the location of some really advanced medical research. In fact, the little symbol that we get with the, the, the cross and the snake wrapped around it is likely come from Smyrna and their commitment to medicine and that endeavor. They were also a religious center in Asia Minor as they had the temple to Athena, not surprisingly the goddess of wisdom, which just reinforced their academic pursuits. And much like Smyrna last week, it was also a center for the imperial cult, for the worship of the emperor, whoever that happened to be of Rome at the time. Pergamum was an intellectual city. It was a very religious city. It was a patriotic city. In, in that way, it was much like Lincoln that we live in today. A city where ideas and differing worldviews both collide and find themselves blending. What in some ways can be a good thing as people of diverse cultures come together also proved to be a challenge for the city of Pergamum as the ideas of Christianity begin to blend with the pagan worship of the culture. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get into that here in a moment. Okay, what do we know about the church at, Smyr or at Pergamum? Much like the church at Smyrna, the reality is we don't know a lot. It's only found in the Bible in this text. So we just really don't know much about the church at Pergamum, though like so many churches, it appeared to be a bit of a mixed bag with some good things and some bad things said about it, as we'll see here in just a moment. But first, before we move into what the aim of the letter is, before we talk about what Jesus wanted this church to do and to understand, Christ introduces himself to this church in a very unique way. Look at the latter part of verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Him who has the sharp two-edged sword, down later in verse 16, he's going to say, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. This seems like a strange picture to us. This is the shortest introduction of all the seven letters where Jesus only gives one defining characteristic about him. It says he has a sharp two-edged sword. And we've already run into this in Revelation. You remember? In Revelation chapter 1 verse 16, we've already read this. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
This description of strife, it seems really bizarre to us that there would be this sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. So this is clearly a metaphor. What we're not talking about is Jesus running around the world with a sword sticking out of his mouth, swinging his head left and right. That's not what we're talking about in the book of Revelations. It's a metaphor. It's, it's the idea of Jesus speaking and the sword has the power. This isn't the only place in Scripture that we find this. If you flip back farther in Revelation, this theme comes up again in chapter 19. And we see in verse 15 of chapter 19, Jesus coming in his, in his triumphal return, and it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So what we see here is a picture of Christ's words having a judgment and an authority in the world. Now this likely is borrowed from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, where Isaiah is talking about the branch, the shoot that will come from the stump of Jesse, and it says, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And this should sound somewhat familiar to us. Can anyone think of the other place that we find this idea of a sword being the word of God? This fall, we're going to be studying Hebrews. Flip a little bit to, your, to the left in your Bibles and find the book of Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read this, which is probably a familiar passage to you. Verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." Picking up on this theme that we see throughout Scripture, Christ says, I am the one who has a sharp, two-edged sword. And he's emphasizing two things that we have to keep in mind as we move forward into this letter to Pergamum. He's emphasizing that Christ's words are discerning right from wrong. Did you pick that up? The sword is dividing what is right and what's wrong. It's separating what's true and what's not true. It is absolutely discerning when he speaks. And secondly, we also see this two-edged sword bringing justice and judgment. We cannot miss this reality in the letter to Pergamum. This sword of Christ is perfectly discerning, but it also brings judgment on those that rebel against Christ. Addressing this church that is under pressure to conform to the culture around them, Christ reminds them that His word is perfect discernment, it is absolute justice, and it is ultimate authority. The words of Christ are perfect discernment, absolute justice, and ultimate authority. And the church at Pergamum needed to know this because Christ is going to say some very hard things to them. But we also need to know this if we're going to hear the words to Pergamum this morning. Each week, we want to be asking ourselves three questions. What are we to believe? How are we to behave? And how are we to endure until Christ returns? Let's tackle the first one. What are we to believe? What does this introduction of Christ teach us about how or what we are to believe? Let's start individually. God speaking is God acting. God speaking is God acting. 
We see this throughout the Bible. From Genesis, when God creates everything in the universe out of nothing by a simple word, to the end of the book in Revelation, where Jesus comes speaking a word of absolute authoritative judgment on everyone that's rebelled against him, God speaking is God acting. But sometimes we act like we want more than that, don't we? We act as if the word of God that we carry around on our phones The Word of God that we have sitting on our shelves at home isn't enough, isn't authoritative, isn't powerful, isn't, the theological word would be, sufficient. It's not enough. We need more than that. And it's important to note that God speaking is God acting. The sword coming from Jesus' mouth is a metaphor for the impact and the effectiveness of the words of Christ, the Word of God. But then corporately, what do we need to remember? What does this teach us as a church? I would say this, God's word brings both salvation and judgment. This is a hard message for us to hear, is it not? God's word, the delivery of God's word brings both salvation and judgment. This is the idea of those that have ears to hear, let them hear. We're going to talk about that later in this passage. But God speaking truth brings both judgment and salvation. And we get a little bit uncomfortable with this sometimes, don't we? We want God's mercy, but without His wrath. We want God's love, but without His judgment. We want God to be fair and equal, but not judge evil. And so God's word brings both salvation and judgment. You cannot have forgiveness without righteousness. And we need to keep this in mind because as Pergamum is tempted to temper their message, we are tempted to temper our message as well. To do away with the difficult things to say. To do away with the hard things to understand. To define God by our definition of love rather than using him as the measuring rod for what love is. And Pergamum needed to hear this. They needed to hear this in order to apply what Christ tells them in the aim of the letter. And so we move from the address in verse 12 to the aim of the letter. Look at verse 13. He starts out with compliments here. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. He shifts from what they need to know about him to what he has to say to them, and he compliments them. We've noted some of the introductions here. He says, I know, and rather than saying, I know your works, that theme will come up again later in other churches, he says, I know where you dwell. Where were they? Well, they were in the city of Pergamum. We've talked a little bit about that, but he defines it as where Satan's throne is. Similar to last week where we talked about the Jews being a synagogue to Satan, this idea is the idea of rebellion against God. Satan's throne is not a literal throne room in Pergamum where the the people of Pergamum had set up a throne to Satan, but it's the idea of a rebellion against God, a place where God, rebellion against God's authority is enthroned. A place where rebellion against God is worshipped and adored and openly spoken about. At this point, I want to pause for a moment here. Depravity and rebellion against God 
is the norm for human history. We need to keep this in mind, don't we? We have a tendency to think that what we're seeing in our culture, in the world around us, is somehow new. And in some ways it is, but in a lot of ways it's not. The reality is, rebellion against God's authority and human sinful depravity is entirely normal for human history. Now, this isn't to minimize the fact that the church at Pergamum was in a difficult location. It was in what might be defined as a stronghold of this rebellion against God. But it's still very much the case. All of us live in a world where sin and rebellion against God is the norm. We can fool ourselves into thinking that everything is fine and everybody's pretty much good, but that's not the truth of what God's Word teaches us. God's Word teaches us that every single one of us has a sinful, depraved heart. And so Pergamum was in a difficult city, and yet, and I love this encouragement, look at verse four, or 13, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. He says, you're in a very difficult context. You're being pressed from the outside. You're being pressed to conform, but you are not denying my name. You are holding fast to my name. You are clinging tightly to the identity and the family that you have in Christ. Last week, we talked about how in Smyrna, people had given up everything they had, their possessions, their friends, their families, their reputation to say, I'm with Christ. And he says to the church at Pergamum, you have not denied my name. You are willing to say, I'm with Christ. I identify with that name. Now, about the only appropriate metaphor we have for this is when we change our names yet today, right? There's basically two situations. I mean, you can go and change your name if you're above 18 at this point, but pretty much there's only two reasons that we change our names anymore, right? One, when women get married, sometimes they take on their husband's name. Two, when you're adopted into a family and you take on a new family name, a new last name, right? And what are you saying in that moment? You're not saying, I like these people, I'll hang out with them if it's convenient. You're saying, I identify with this family. My identity is grounded in this family. Who I am is involved with these people. That's exactly what the church in Pergamum was doing with Christ. They were saying, I'm with Christ no matter what it costs me. And secondarily, it says they did not deny the faith. They did not deny the faith, even when they were under the sort of persecution that Smyrna was experiencing. The description here is, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. This is just like what we talked about. We don't really know who Antipas is. He doesn't have a lot written on him. We don't know what role he played in the church. But he was a believer, and he died for identifying with Christ. And yet, the church held firm. Precisely like we were talking about last week, the church was willing to give everything in their lives for Christ. As a side note, if you didn't know, on our, our Twitter account and Facebook page this last week, we posted a video from IMN. It's an affiliation of Voice of the Martyrs, and it's a video on the faithfulness and perseverance of believers in Iran or Iraq under ISIS. I would really encourage you, if you didn't watch it, didn't see it this last week, to go out and find that video on our Facebook page or our Twitter account. It's incredibly convicting and incredibly encouraging, but this church was doing precisely the same thing as our brothers and sisters halfway around the world. 
they were not denying the faith. And he commends them. He says, this is a hard place to be, and you have not denied my faith. But after complimenting this church for their faithfulness amidst incredible suffering, we run into verse 14. And just like Ephesus, we find ourselves with a but. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, let's start by taking these one at a time. There's two things. There's the teaching of Balaam and there's the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Let's start with the teaching of Balaam. What is this? You're likely familiar with the story of Balaam and the, and the talking donkey. Balaam is somewhat infamous in the Old Testament for the uniqueness of his story. We find this story in Numbers 22 through 24, if you want to go back and read more on it this afternoon. Um, but for now, we don't have the time to go clear the story. So in the immortal words of Inigo Montoya, let me explain. No, wait, it's too much. Let me sum up, okay? Let me sum up here for you, okay? The Israelites are traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land in Canaan. They have to pass through Moab. Balak is the king of Moab. But the Israelites, by the power of God, have been defeating every army that comes out against them on their way to the promised land. So Balak recognizes this and says, I'm in trouble. If I go out to fight against the Israelites, I'm going to get defeated. So instead, I've got this great idea. There's this prophet over here called Balaam. And if I can get Balaam, this prophet, to curse the Israelites, then maybe we stand a chance of defeating them. But unfortunately, God doesn't allow it. Surprisingly, right? God is blessing the people of Israel. He's moving them up to Canaan. And so he doesn't allow it. Balaam tries, he goes, and instead of, blessing, or instead of cursing the Israelites, he ends up blessing the Israelites. But he's persistent and he tries again. And instead of cursing them, he blesses them, cursing them and blesses them. Balaam says, forget it. I'm tired of you blessing my enemies. This isn't helping me. And he sends Balaam home without his reward. Now at that point, we would be tempted to think, okay, things turned out Okay. However, later on in Numbers, in Numbers 31, we learned that Balaam figured out a way to get his reward. God didn't allow him to curse the Israelites at the time, so instead he advised Balaam. He said, Balaam, here's what you do, or Balak, here's what you do. You send out the harlots of Moab. You send them out to tempt the Israelites. And once you get them to entice the people of Israel into sexual sin, then you guide them to their idolatry against God. And we learn in chapter 25 of Numbers that it worked. That the people of Israel who could not be defeated by the external attack or by the curse of God chased after the foreign women and the foreign gods of Moab, and as a result, God brought divine judgment on his own people. And this becomes a metaphor for false teachers who try to lead the people of God astray. And so we read it's the exact same thing in Pergamum. They hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might what? Eat food sacrificed to idol, engage in idol worship, and practice sexual immorality. The same old sins that have always been getting the people of God. In a new way, by these teachers. See, the summary of this is essentially these teachers were trying to compromise. They were trying to make Christianity fit within the pagan culture of Pergamum. 
They were trying to say something that was very enticing to the people of Pergamum. You can stay within your cultural identity. You can keep your friends and neighbors and family members and beliefs, and you can have a little Jesus on the side too. And you can feel just fine about it. You can go to the temple of Athena this weekend and you can worship in all these incredibly lavish, sexually immoral ways and you can walk back into the church and it doesn't make any difference. And this is very, very similar to the second part, the second accusation they hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In fact, there's a lot of reasons to think these two actually go hand in hand. The first is that the transition we see in verse 15 is, so also you have some that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So likely he's, he's drawing a parallel. There's also the reality that both Balaam and the word Nicolaitans basically mean to rule or to consume or to overcome the people. And so it would appear, though we don't have a whole lot of teaching on the Nicolaitans in the, in the New Testament, it would seem that these were essentially the same teaching. Now, whether they're the same cult exactly, we're not entirely sure, but they were basically teaching the same thing. They were teaching a form of syncretism. They were teaching the church in Pergamum that you can have your pagan worship, you can have your sexual immorality, and you can have your Christian faith. That there's no conflict between what you say you believe and what you do with your life. Both are essentially a heart of accommodation. A heart that says you can think, you can believe, you can act just like the world and the culture around you. And it is no problem for your Christian faith. <laughs> it's a popular thing to believe nowadays too, is it not? To not stand on what the truth of God's word is but to say, I can find a way to make God's word say what I want it to say. I can find a way to interpret God's word so that it doesn't contemn the lifestyle I want to live. Again, not new sins, the same old sins we've been guilty of for generations. And the church at Pergamum was beginning to buy into this message. The text doesn't say it, but likely due to the pressure they were feeling. They had stood up and they'd said, we will endure persecution, but the culture of Pergamum was beginning to slip in and get roots in the church of Pergamum. But Christ naturally issues a loving correction for the people at Pergamum here. Just like in every other portion of these letters where we see Christ say, there's this issue, let me tell you what to do about it. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, repent. The same action he told the church at Ephesus to do. Repent. We talked about how repentance means an admission of fault, an expression of sorrow, and a change of behavior. The same thing applies here. He says to the church that's embracing this false teaching not only an ideological, head-knowledge false teaching, but a practical false teaching of the way they were living their lives. He says, repent. One word. Repent. And I think he has two groups in mind here. We tend to think, obviously, that he's talking about the false teachers. These false teachers that were espousing teachings and lifestyles that were opposed to the Word of God. 
And that's true, but that's not primarily who he's speaking to in this letter. He's speaking primarily to the church for tolerating them. He looks at the church, not so much the false teachers, and says, you are allowing this false teaching in your church. And he tells the church to repent. To repent of their accommodation. To repent of their willingness to just allow people to say whatever. To repent of this allowing this false teaching to grow up within their church and to pull people away from their focus on Christ. He looks at the church and says, repent. Or he issues a warning, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, God's word, Christ's words here have cut through. It has divided truth from error. It has divided right from wrong. And now he says, if my words come, it will come in judgment. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth if you do not repent. Basically, Christ is saying here, address the heresy in your church or else. Address the heresy in your church or I will. Next week, we're going to talk about the church at Thyatira. And we're going to get a bit more of a description of what that looked like. We'll talk more about that. But it's incredible to note the church here at Pergamum and what Jesus is saying to them. They were so strong in claiming the name of Christ publicly that they were willing to die to say, I'm with Christ. But they had gradually, step by step, justification by justification, allowed this idolatrous, sensual culture around them to influence what they believed, what they thought, and what they did. And he says to that church, repent. And I think he says the same thing to any of us that have bought into that same idea today. We must believe that God's word is authoritative, it is sufficient, it is powerful, it is bringing divine judgment. But we also have a way we need to behave in light of this message to the church at Pergamum. Let's start individually again. We must prayerfully and vigilantly search out where we have personally caved to our culture and address the issues. We must prayerfully and vigilantly search out where we personally have caved to the culture and address the issues. In case you're struggling to figure out what that might look like, let me give you some examples of what that might mean. Let me ask you this question. What experiences or feelings trump what God's Word says in your life? What experiences are you seeking? What feelings in your heart are driving you and they trump what God's Word says? Is it your sexual appetite? It's a common one in our culture, right? I know God's Word says this, but I feel this way. Right? I know God's word says homosexuality is wrong, but I feel like it's right. I know God's word says premarital sex is wrong, but I feel like it's right. Is it your comfort? 
I know God's Word says I should strive after Him, but right now I just want to sit on the couch. Is it your aversion to conflict and criticism? I know God's Word says I should take a stand for my faith at work, but won't I just cause a mess? If I stand up for Christ, if I say I'm not willing to do that immoral thing, won't I get made fun of and won't I, get, won't I end up in a fight? Might I get fired? So we let our feelings, we let our experiences trump what God's Word says we're supposed to do. We allow the culture to get in and we begin to compromise. Second question. What things undermine your involvement with Christ's church? What things have a tendency to pull you away from Christ and His body? Is it your work? If you're in middle school or high school, is it your sleep? How about your peers and your extracurricular activities? And I'm not just talking to the kids here. Yes, kids, it is hard when every single one of your friends says this is wrong and this is right and you know the Bible teaches the opposite. The church at Pergamum knew how hard that was. And so one step at a time, we begin to say, I know God's word says this, but what if I interpret it this way? I know God's word says this, but what if I rationalize it this way? I know God's word says this, but my friends are going to hate me if I stand on that. And we begin to compromise one step at a time. How about corporately? How about as a church? This is going to sound really familiar. We must prayerfully and vigilantly search out where we have organizationally caved to the culture and address the issues. Individually, we can begin to conform to the culture, but as a church, we can begin to conform to the culture too. Let me attempt to suggest a few idols here for consideration. What good things are preventing us from, as, a, as a church from pursuing the best things that God has? This is real for the elders as we've been evaluating coming out of COVID-19 and what this might look like. Asking ourselves the question, are there things that we've just taken for granted as a church that are more cultural than they are biblical? Are there programs, are there personal preferences, are there expectations that are more cultural than they are biblical? And trust me, as leaders in this church, we struggle with the peer pressure too. Believe it or not, we actually want to be liked by the church. And making these decisions is a hard battle where we ask, is it cultural or is it biblical? There's a difference. Or what doctrines are we tempted to minimize? The doctrine of hell and God's wrath. We don't talk about that because it's not comfortable for our culture. A biblical definition of marriage and sexuality, we don't talk about that because they could take our 403B. The right appropriate teaching on the church and what it means to take up our cross and follow Christ. We don't teach on that because that seems awfully serious for church. We're all guilty of compromising in some areas of our lives. We live in a culture that's just like Pergamum, that celebrates rebellion against God and works its way into what we think, what we believe, and how we live our lives. 
And we have to be vigilant and prayerful to see those things. Because most of us are blinded to the things of our culture. We take it for granted. But Christ doesn't wrap up his letter with this aim. Because Christ, as a loving bridegroom, has a final commitment to his bride. And we see that in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one except the one who or know or that no one knows except the one who receives it. He has this charge for the church, this corrective action, and yet he still offers the he who has ears to hear, he who is willing to respond to this message positively. The condition is the one who conquers, and we've talked about that every week. Our conquering is not our own self-developed strength and energy. It is in so far as we participate in Christ's victory. And he offers two rewards. He says, I will give hidden manna, and I will give a white stone. And this is where things get tricky. We're still in the book of Revelation here. We know there's a lot of metaphor and imagery here, and we struggle a little bit. This, this hidden manna idea is a bit obscure, He's looking back again to the same story as Balaam where God provided manna to the people of Israel as they were leaving Egypt and coming to the promised land. And likely he's offering it in opposition to the food sacrificed to idols and the criticism and the worship of Baal that he's talked about here. But I think what this hidden manna is speaking to is he's portraying the final fellowship at the marriage supper of the Lamb that we'll see in chapter 19 of Revelation. He's talking about the sustaining power of Christ the presence of Christ, that future reality of celebrating at the final marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus. But in addition to this hidden manna, he also offers a white stone, and I love this imagery. He says, I will, or to the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. Now, this would have made perfect sense to the church in Pergamum, but we struggle a little bit to understand exactly what we're talking about here. See, white and black stones were used for a couple of things in the Asia Minor culture. They were used, first of all, for trials. So if people thought you guilty, they would put a black stone in the bag. If people thought you were innocent, they'd put a white stone in the bag. And so it was a sign of acquittal if you got white stones. It was also a sign of acceptance. When you were trying to get into one of these trade guilds that Smyrna and Pergamum were struggling with, and people were kind of evaluating you like a fraternity, you had to get all white stones in order to make it into the fraternity. If anyone put in a black stone, you didn't make the cut. And so it's a sign of both acquittal and acceptance. In fact, the opposite of this is actually where we get the term being blackballed. If you're blackballed, if you're not allowed to participate in something, it's because somebody put a black stone in the bag. And so the opposite of being blackballed says the reward to those that are faithful to me, the reward to those that would hear and participate in Christ's victory is acquittal and acceptance. He says, I'm going to write a new name on it. I'm going to write a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He goes back to that theme that he's already talked about as far as holding fast to the name of Christ. And he says, I will give you a new name. A new name that will identify you with me. That new name will highlight an awareness and an association and a fellowship with me. 
In summary, Christ is promising that those who hold fast and share in his victory will be granted a new family, a new food, and a new fellowship in this eternal celebration in heaven one day. The church at Pergamum was under pressure, external pressure to conform and to renounce the name of Christ, and internal pressure to adopt these false theologies and these heresies. And Christ says, if you hold on, if you stay true, if you listen to my words and don't conform to the culture around you, this is the promise. So what are the final takeaways for us as a church? Again, what are we to believe? How are we to behave? And then how do we endure? How do we as individuals and as a church endure? Because our culture is very much like Pergamum, isn't it? How do we stay faithful to the end? I would give you two things. Individually, commit to being transformed by God's Word not conformed to this world. In the words of Romans 12, that says, be not transformed to the world, or be not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. Commit to being transformed by God's word more than the influences of this world. And we all admit to this, don't we? Intellectually, we say that's important. But let me ask you this. Consider what influences you allow to shape your mind? What influences have a grip on what you think, what you believe, and what you do? The normal culprits here are movie and television and music, right? Those have always been talked about. Anymore, I would say it's got to be the news you watch, too. What things do you allow to occupy your thoughts and your time? And how much of time do you give to those as opposed to the Word of God? How much do you allow those opinions to shape what you think and believe, and how much do you allow God's Word to refine what you think and believe? Corporately, I think the exhortation here to endure is to commit to watching out for each other. The criticism of the church at Pergamum is there's this heresy that's come up within your church and you haven't done anything about it. We'll discuss this more next week as we get into the nitty-gritty of how difficult it is in churches to address these. But as a church, as the bride of Christ, if we are to hold up God's holiness, we have to commit to watching out for each other. We have to commit to caring enough to find out if there's a heresy in our brothers or sisters. We have to commit to lovingly rebuking each other when that happens. Again, do we care more about what God's Word says, or do we care more about being liked and being comfortable? And at times, we even have to commit to discipline each other when that's necessary. This is the truth of what God's Word is. This is the truth of what Christ says to his church in Pergamum. You endure by rooting out these problems. We endure by recognizing the discerning, authoritative power of God's word. By helping each other root out the ways that we've compromised to our culture. And by seeking acceptance in the only place it really matters. 
Not in our peers, not in our friends, not in our work, not in our culture, but in Christ's approval. This is a constant process in the life of the believer. Every day our culture is pressing you to conform and to compromise to what it values. And Christ's word cuts through the noise. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. For the fact that it's real love and not what our culture espouses for love. That you love us in an uncompromising way. That you love us enough to teach us the truth, to tell us what's right and what's wrong, and to tell us that if we avoid what is wrong, it's really what's good for us. Lord, give us the courage to to prayerfully seek out those areas where we as a church and we as individuals have begun to compromise on what your word says. Where we've begun to say right is wrong and wrong is right. Make us aware of those. And then give us the courage to address them. Help us to lovingly be involved in each other's lives so we become aware of these issues before they fester and become a major issue. Lord, mold us into the church we need to be to endure until Christ returns. We long for that to not be long, but we want to be faithful as long as you tarry. Father, make us a church that is unwilling to compromise. For the glory of Christ, for his name's sake, we pray in his name. Amen.